Well, good morning, church family. It's good to be with you as we worship Jesus. Um, this is really exciting. It feels like there is a, a presence in our gathering today as we uh, celebrate how great our God is. Because He is great. He is great. His ways are unsearchable. His power is unimaginable. And we are here together to celebrate that greatness. Um, if you are a child waiting to be dismissed, you are dismissed. I'm sorry I got distracted on the greatness of God, uh, but we need to dis- dismiss our kiddos. And so if you are going to kids' care, there are some folks in the back there that will guide you. We're in a series in the book of Romans, and we're marching through the book of Romans, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. And we're trying to dig in and ask the question, what does God want to say to Mosaic Church? What does God want to say to you? What does God want to say to me? And these chapters that we're in, Romans 1, Romans 2, and Romans 3, they're they're intense chapters. They're hard chapters to look at and to really dig into. But I think one of the things that Paul is doing in these early chapters of Romans is he is tenderizing us and softening us for the gospel. And oftentimes we go to some of the gospel passages, and we should because they're great. There are treasures in Romans 8. There are powerful truths in Romans 6. But when we skip over Romans 1, 2, and 3, we miss the opportunity to feel the weight of the gospel to feel the weight of God's wrath, to feel the weight of what we have been saved from and delivered from. And so we want to press in, and we want to lean in to Romans 2. Paul is doing something in Romans 2. There's a transition, and he is building a rhetorical conversation with a Jewish Christian who's at the church of Rome, and he's anticipating arguments that are being raised against what he is talking about. He's anticipating attitudes that are stirring up in the Jewish mind, in the church, under the new covenant. And he is addressing these very systematically and very directly. And his ultimate aim is to bring these Jewish Christians to Jesus. But he's also building the theological furniture for a case for the unity between Jews and Gentiles, two ethnic groups coming together in one body, in one new man, is some language he uses. And in the first part of Romans 2, we, we were challenged. Paul looks at the Jewish Christians and says, hey, be careful. Don't miss your sin. Don't become an expert in everyone else's sin and miss your own. Because that's the drift that tugs church folk. We're in church for a long time. We begin to become experts in everyone else's sin but our, but our own. Don't miss your sin. God's judgment is impartial. And in the second half of Romans 2, he doubles down. He doubles down and goes after specific features that the Jewish Christians were still holding on to in the new covenant. There were things that the Jewish Christian was still holding on to thinking, God will favor me because of this. And Paul is going to hit these really hard. And so let's read the passage, Romans 2, verses 12 to 29. And after I read our passage, I will say, this is God's word, and you can respond, thanks be to God. This is a way that we confirm that God has not left his people in silence. He has spoken and given us his word. 
Romans 2, starting in verse 12. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on the day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent, because you are instructed from the law, And if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having the law, the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then, who teach others, do you teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must commit, must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, Dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. If you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision, but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly. A circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. And his praise is not from man, but from God. This is God's word. Father, we we pause. We've just read your word, your God-breathed word. And we want to be helped by it. We want to be challenged by it. We want to be drawn into it. And so I ask, God, would you anoint this time with the presence and power and plan of your spirit? Holy Spirit, we love you. We need you to illuminate. We need you to challenge. We need you to encourage. We need you to rework what is disordered in our hearts and minds as we try and live out the life of Jesus in the city of Richardson. And so help us. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. I want you to imagine the master kitchen. The master kitchen. You walk in to this master kitchen, and it's on par with all the design features. You know, whatever they are, granite countertops, hardwood floors, the backsplash, it's got everything. But it also has something important. It has flow to it. It's spacious. It's open. There's lots of light. The garbage is right by the prep table. The stove is right in the center, and there's a big area around the stove. The fridge is is right behind this area. There's something magnificent about it. There's something important. It has all the gadgets. 
It's got all the good stuff, the spatulas, the zesters, all the stuff you would need to cook and to create this great meal. But there's one thing that the master kitchen is missing. You walk in and you see it and you go, wow. What is the one thing the master kitchen is missing? Anybody? The master chef. The master kitchen requires the master chef. Or we might say the heart of the master chef. Because when the heart of someone who loves to cook steps into the master kitchen, there is a stirring. There is energy. There is imagination and creativity. And the the master chef walks into that space and already is visualizing, I could do this, I could do that. I've been working on this and that would fit right there. And what Paul is doing in Romans 2 is he's trying to help us understand that the Christian life is like the master kitchen. The master kitchen needs the master chef, and there is something that the Christian life requires in order to be all that it could be. The Christian life, the the spiritual disciplines and routines, the Bible reading plans that we have, or the church that we're a part of and the ministry that we're involved in, all of these things are good. The master kitchen is good. It's, It's got all the stuff, all what is required to cook a great meal, but it's missing one thing. And what Paul in Romans 2 is saying, you can have the best Christian life. You can architect the best spiritual habits. You can be a part of the best church in your city. But if you're missing this one thing, it's not going to be what it needs to be. It's not going to be what it could be, what it should be. Because the master kitchen needs the master chef. The master kitchen needs the, the passion and the guts and the energy of the master chef. And what Paul is telling us in this passage is he's saying there's one thing that you need to enliven your Christian life. There's one thing that you must have. And he does this by warning us. He warns us in Romans 2, verses 12 to 29. There's three warnings. And the first warning is don't put your hope in the Bible. His argument in Romans 2 has been don't, God doesn't play favorites. He's speaking to the Jewish Christians under the new covenant, and he says God doesn't play favorites. He's not going to favor you over the Gentiles. All are under sin. All must respond to God's judgment. And Paul is anticipating something in the Jewish Christian heart and mind. Yes, but Paul, but Paul, hold on a minute. We have the law. We have the law. The law's been given to us, not the Gentiles. We have access to the truth of God, and the world has access to the truth of God through us. So God is going to favor us because we have the law. And Paul addresses this in verse 12. He says, for all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they don't have the law. They show that the work of the law is written 
on their hearts. What Paul is saying is that people without the law will be judged according to the law that's been written on their hearts. But people with the law, people with the law, with the truth of God, will be judged by that very law by what has been revealed to them. The Jews had used the law as a symbol of favor. They had clung onto it and held onto it and said, surely God will favor us because we have the law. They were putting their hope in the law. And Paul is trying to help them. He's trying to say, hey, listen. Listen, brother. Listen, sister. The law will not save you. It won't save you. In fact, it will judge you. And it will be the standard by which God will judge your works. And he goes in verse 13, and he creates this dichotomy between the hearers of the law and the doers of the law. And he says, you've you've heard the law over and over and over again since you were a little Jewish boy. But it has had no impact on your life. Your life is unchanged. Your heart is unmoved. Your mind is unstirred. And that same dynamic can manifest and creep in in the church. That same dynamic can infiltrate and infect our hearts and minds when we put our hope in the Bible. When we use the truths about God to to feel better about ourselves when we become so familiar with the Bible, week in, week out, we hear the stuff, we're so close to it that it becomes familiar. It becomes something that we, we just lose sight of the, the potency and the guts and the heart of it. It loses the power to encourage us, the voice into our life. It loses the power to correct and to challenge. It becomes a prop that we use to feel better about ourselves. It becomes a a prop, a tool, a weapon that we use against people who disagree with us. Oh, yeah, you think that? Here, check this verse out. It's a power tool. If you have guilt and shame revolving around your habits in the Bible, you might be putting your hope in the Bible. If you routinely feel bad and discouraged because you're not, you're not reading the Bible like you should. We hear it all the time in our groups. I just, I, like, I know I should be in the Word. I should be in the Word more. And hear me, Bible study is great. I'm not dogging Bible study. You, you should love your Bibles. We love the Bible at Mosaic Church. But what Paul is warning us is that you could put your hope in the Bible. And when you put your hope in the Bible, you are heading in the wrong direction. He's trying to warn us, trying to help us. Don't put your hope in the Bible. The second warning, don't put your hope in ministry. Paul, he pulls the chair closer. He sits down next to the Jewish brother or sister and says, come here, come closer to me. Because I I need you to get this. I need you to understand. You've misplaced your hope in your Jewish heritage. And in verse 17, he identifies the Jew. He says, if you call yourself a Jew, you identify yourself as a Jew. You identify yourself as 
a Christian and you rely on the Bible and you boast in the greatness of God. And he qualifies. He builds these qualifications that are all good. They're not bad. They know his will and approve what is excellent. They are a guide to the blind. They are an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having the law, the embodiment of knowledge and truth. And he drops the hammer and he says, you who teach others, do you teach yourself? You who share the beauties and wonders of God with your neighbor, do you preach those same things to your heart? You who teach your child to obey, do you obey? You who teach and uphold a biblical sexual ethic, do you preach that same thing to your heart? Is that reflected in your life? And he says, you who boast in the law, you who boast in the Bible. We love the Bible at Mosaic. We're, we're Bible-centered, and we love to hold up. We, our, our preaching is from the Word. Our Bible studies are digging into the Word, and there's nothing wrong with that. But when we put our hope in it, it loses its power. When we put our hope in it, we dishonor God because we lose sight of the fact that we break the law ourselves, that we don't uphold the standard that the Bible sets for life and godliness. And what happens with ministry, with our relationship to ministry, when we're putting our hope in ministry, we begin to start doing ministry to earn favor with God. We begin to put our hope in, look at all I'm doing for God. Look at the service in my neighborhood. Look at how I'm discipling my kids. Look at the evangelism that I'm participating in. And we think that God is going to give us favor based on what we do for him. And Paul is saying, please, please root out that misplaced hope. Be careful because there's a temptation to put our hope, put our trust, put our, uh, our, our, our life in the Christian life and the structures that we put around the life of faith. But what Paul is identifying and what Jesus identifies and what the prophets identify is hypocrisy will not be tolerated in God's people. Because hypocrisy dishonors God. Hypocrisy discredits the church's witness. And you might be here and you might be thinking, that's, that's it. That's, that's why I'm not flying the Jesus flag. That's, that's why I'm not wearing the Jesus jerseys, because hypocrisy fills the church. Look at the church, a bunch of hypocrites. Maybe you're a Christian, and that bothers you too. What we want to remember, as Paul is crushing and hitting this hypocrisy in God's people, is that our response as Christians is to grieve hypocrisy. We lament hypocrisy. We grieve it in our hearts and in the church. We grieve it. And we walk in repentance and faith. We be renewed in the gospel of Jesus Christ. But it's also important for us to recognize that God's people are not off limits. That 
God's word routinely addresses the hypocrisy in God's people. Because God knows the temptation, the drift towards finding our hope in the wrong things. And so we want to be careful. And Paul is warning us. And he has one more warning. Don't put your hope in the Bible. Don't put your hope in what you do for God. And don't put your hope in church involvement. Don't put your hope in the church that you belong to. The last issue Paul addresses in chapter 2 is circumcision. And it was a physical marker of God's covenant people in the Old Testament. It was the identifier. And is not church involvement the identifier in church world? Oh, you go to that church. Yeah, yeah. I know this, this, and this about you. I assume this about you. And what we do as we get involved in a healthy, local, gospel-preaching church, which is a really important thing, it's essential that we're involved in a good church. But what, what can happen is we can become complacent. We can become comfortable. We can think, oh, my church is doing that, and so I'm good. Oh, I, I'm hearing good expositional preaching. I'm in the right spot. But that preaching has no impact on our hearts That preaching has no impact on our lives. We have not received the conviction of the Holy Spirit. We have not come to church looking to be challenged, to be changed, and to be held by Christ. And what Paul helps us see at the end in verses 25 to 29 is he says, circumcision is not a sign of special favor with God. It doesn't, it doesn't provide extra, extra points with God because you break the law, is what he says. If, if, you, if you hold on to circumcision and you keep the law, that's, that's good. But you don't. And he's trying to help these Jewish Christians understand that they don't keep the law, that they don't hold up God's standard that they fail, that they are under God's judgment. But Paul helps us understand that one thing that we need, that one essential thing that we need that brings life to the Christian life, that brings joy, that brings energy, that brings power, and it is the heart of faith. The Christian life requires the heart of faith. The master kitchen, it's great. It has all the stuff. It's got the the nice uh, stainless steel fridge. It's got the, the great big island for food prep and the stove and the oven and everything's perfect. But what, what is it missing? It's missing the chef, the person who yearns to cook, who lives to cook, who wants to get in there and start creating, and he's imagining there's possibility, there's life. Oh my gosh, I love to cook. And what Paul is helping us understand is that the Christian life requires the heart of faith. The heart of faith changes everything. When we bring the heart of faith to the Bible, whoa, watch out. You better buckle up. Because when you bring the heart of faith to the Bible, The Bible does what it's meant to do. 
The Bible speaks to us. It grips us. It changes us. So we want to bring the heart of faith to the Bible. When we bring the heart of faith to ministry, it becomes less about what we're doing for God and what we are offering up as an, as an offering of joy. Ministry becomes a joy. It's, it's a gift. We get to do this. When we bring the heart of faith to our church involvement, You see it? When you come to church with the heart of faith and you are hungry for God and you can't handle it, you're like, I, I want to sing all day. Let's sing again. Come on. When you long all week to come on Sunday because you're like, I want my heart to be stirred. I want to be reminded of the greatness of God. I want to see my people, my brothers and sisters in Christ, and to be encouraged that there are other people in the city living for God. <laughs> when we bring the heart of faith to our church involvement, it is powerful. It is dynamic. It is living. It livens. The Christian life sings when we bring the heart of faith to the Christian life. And this is exactly what Paul is saying in this passage. And you might be wondering, okay, don't, I, I'm not supposed to put my hope in the Bible. I'm not supposed to put my hope in ministry or church involvement. Where do I put my hope? And Paul says, hope in God. Hope in God. Hope in the power of God to refresh and renew and enliven your life. Hope in God who is actively working in your life. Jesus is working in your life right now. He is praying for you right now. And the Holy Spirit is trying to press that into your mind, press that into your life. He is working through God's people as you have community around you. And they're saying the same things that the Spirit's saying, that the Bible's saying. He's after you. He wants you. And this is what Paul says in verse 29, but a Jew is one inwardly. A circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not the letter. And his praise is not from man, but from God. Whew. His praise is not from man, but from God. So I don't know where you are this morning. I don't know whether you feel the weight of not, not maintaining your Bible reading plan. Maybe you have a newborn at your house. You're like, man, I, I can't do it. Maybe, maybe you're in a spot where you, you got no ministry. You were in a, involved in a church in the past, and you were doing really great work, and now at Mosaic, you, just, you don't have a space. Start with the heart of faith. Start there. Stay there. Hold the heart of faith. Put your hope in God. Because God will use anything. God will use any passage. Right? Sometimes I come to the minor prophets and I'm like, I can't even pronounce this guy's name. But I know there's something here for me. And the heart of faith is, is I'm going to learn. I'm going to do whatever it takes to, to learn from God here. The heart of faith can be involved in any type of ministry. 
and it's going to find a way to do really awesome work. And that's the thing. The master kitchen is great, and we want to we be a part of building a master kitchen in our lives together at Mosaic Church. But I was watching a video of Gordon Ramsay, and he was in his kitchen, and it was, it was pretty amazing. Gordon Ramsay's a master chef, and uh, he, said, he said, listen, this stuff is all great, but let me tell you something. You give me a good frying pan, a hot plate, and a knife, and I'll make you something great. And that's the point. The heart of faith will use and enliven anything. It will use and enliven the thing that is really, in the eyes of church world, not that great. And that's where we want to go, is the heart of faith. Let's pray. Father, we, we thank you for speaking to us this morning. We thank you for the little voices in the background. That is just a sign of life. We thank you for brothers and sisters gathering together to singing about God's greatness and God's glory. And we thank you for Romans 2. And we thank you for warning us against misplaced hope. Would we not fall victim to the misplaced hope? Would you give us a heart of faith? Would you circumcise our hearts by the Spirit, not the letter? Holy Spirit, we, we need you. We want you. And so I pray, Spirit of God, would you flood our church. Holy Spirit of God, would you blow fresh wind across our church and raise up hearts of faith. And we thank you for doing that even now. We love you, Father, and we are grateful for you. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, uh, you can stand with me. We're going to